You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Greg Ebel joins us. He's the CEO of Enbridge Energy. It's a New York Stock Exchange-listed company. Uh, the ticker is ENB. The company reported some earnings um, today. Um, so, Greg, talk to us about uh, – thanks so much for joining us here. Talk to us about kind of what you guys reported with your latest earnings results and kind of what's the outlook you're, you're, you're telling the street these days. Yeah, for sure, Matt. Paul, great to be with you again. And yeah, a very solid quarter, both operationally and financially for us, right across all of our business. You know, we saw record volumes and results on the liquids business. Our, our mainline pipeline system saw record volumes. Our export facilities saw record volumes. And so we uh, we beat, obviously, the street uh, estimates for the quarter, which is great. And we confirmed that uh, we would meet our, uh, our goals for the full year. And uh, we announced a little bit of tuck-in M&A. You know, we bought some uh, renewable uh, offshore wind facilities uh, that we had originally participated in in Germany, and then renewable natural gas facilities in the United States. All very long-term contracts, you know, 10 years or more, uh, and all very consistent with that, you know, all of the above approach that I think the public wanted, investors want, and that actually creates a lot of value for us. So we're pretty excited about the road ahead. Why is, uh, I mean, the stock's up today, but why is it down um, 13% year to date? What's, uh, is it the underlying commodity that's a problem? Um, Is it concern about demand? what's, What's holding the stock down? You know what? We have been, and very proudly so, so for decades, increased the dividend year after year. Very utility-like uh, in that structure. And as uh, you know, you guys pointed off uh, just a few minutes ago, with interest rates that have been up, uh, that impacts dividend-paying stocks like ourselves. And uh, as you've seen uh, in the last, uh, call it four days, what we've seen, 40, 50, 60 basis points, uh, coming in on the 10-year, you've seen the stocks that pay dividends react. So it's not the commodity. It's not energy demand. We see up those. We don't have commodity exposure. Really is that 10-year interest rate uh, side of things. So uh, that's, a, that's a macro factor that, frankly, uh, I can't do anything about. What we can do is make sure the company runs well, meets its earnings targets, and continues to uh, build up both organic growth and, and some of these acquisitions. Greg, talk to us about, again, you mentioned some of these acquisitions and the investments you make in renewables. Realistically, do you have a good handle 
on the types of returns you can get on renewables. It just feels like maybe some of the shine is off that side of the energy business. Well, it's a good point. I think investors are starting to figure out that they are, you know, renewables are all not, not built the same, right? So those that have long-term contracts, in other words, uh, you know, 10, 15-year co contracts with great counterparties, so larger utilities or big industrials, those are the ones you want to participate in because, you know, they've got a guaranteed price set on that power. They've got a great um, investment-grade customer that's taking that power, and you're going to get paid. Those that are kind of going in a merchant world and haven't got these things contracted or in jurisdictions where it's extremely difficult to build things, which is a lot of jurisdictions these days, I think you're seeing those entities uh, being, um, you know, a, a lot tougher to get the returns that uh, the ones I previously talked about, which is why our renewable business, which we've actually been in for 20 years, is all about that contracted business. So our European stuff, you know, our customers are folks like uh, EDF, Electricity de France, or the, the government in Ger Germany. And then here in the U.S., most of our customers would be utility-like players. And even on the renewable natural gas tuck-in that we, we had today, we have 10-year contracts with the likes of BP and Shell. So I think, uh, and I think this is great for companies like Enbridge who have done it on a low risk basis, that you're going to see differentiation. Those that have actually structured their businesses to create good returns, double digit returns, are going to be rewarded. While those that have gone more merchanty, I think that's going to be a tough slug for them. Where do you see demand going for uh, energy? I mean, I, I mean, as we see the jobs numbers uh, miss, and as we expect either a soft landing or a recession, I imagine demand slows down. Is that the case? Yeah, you know, typically energy uh, is about two thirds of GDP. And or, in other words, energy growth grows about two thirds of GDP. So if you thought uh, GDP was going to be 3%, you get energy at two. That's one. Two, uh, remember, people don't shut off their lights and they don't turn off the gas in their house even when you've, uh, you're in a recession. Where you see it is on some of the industrial load, but most of our stuff is, is uh, for ultimately residential players. So um, I don't see that having a big, big impact. But remember, we're building assets for 10, 20 years. So virtually every um, report that you would see globally and in the United States, we will be using more energy 10 years from now than we use today. And uh, particularly so in developing countries, you're going to see them continue to move up the economic food chain, and that always requires more energy. So some of our assets on the export side of things, whether it's our liquefied natural gas export facilities we're building on the west coast of Canada, or our oil export facility on the Gulf Coast of the United States, which is the largest in the U.S., you continue to see very good response there, even through recession. So, yeah, I think the demand comes down a bit, but it continues to grow. So I, I saw you announced intentions to buy uh, some utilities, I guess, in Ohio, North Carolina, and, and Utah. I mean, it's a big number, $14 billion. What's the strategy in, get in, in the utility business? So we're, you know, it's interesting, maybe a little bit of contrarian, but I, I think we're right on this. We've been in the utility business for a long time. We've got the largest gas utility in Canada. This will make us the largest gas utility in North America by volume serving some 7 million customers in jurisdictions that are really gas friendly. So they actually have ban the ban uh, legislation, if you will. They will not allow communities uh, to ban natural gas. They know how important it 
it is for industrial growth. Think of what's going on in Ohio so much from a steel automotive uh, refining perspective, gas is critical. And then growth areas like North Carolina and Utah, very favorable environments. So we saw that and it fits right into our dividend paying, low risk uh, environment. And gas continues to grow. In fact, you continue these uh, utilities, you will see their rate base, or if you will, their uh, their customer setup and the assets that they use grow by a compound annual growth rate of 8% uh, through the end of the decade. So that was our strategy. Um, you know, we had a selling a seller that was largely an electric player that had to move out of that business for other reasons uh, related to, uh, you know, its electricity business that created an opportunity. We were able to buy that as historic lows, 1.3 times that, that base of the business. Um, and uh, so we were a big enough player, we could buy all three. And that's really exciting for us as we move and uh, close those in 2024 and have them fully in the barn and ready to, uh, to produce in 2024. So I'm looking on the Bloomberg terminal, Greg, and I see a dividend yield for you guys of, you know, 7.6%. I mean, that is just huge. What is, yeah. what's a dividend policy you, you kind of communicate to your shareholders? Sure. So we pay out and, and we've been uh, paying a dividend for forever. Um, and it's an important part of our equation. I think our compound annual total total shareholder return is about 11% since uh, 2000. And then you go back to the 60s and you'd find it about a similar number. And the philosophy there is as we build these low risk uh, projects and we bring them in, we can pay out 60 to 70% of that cash flow to investors through dividends. Um, and so the higher yield right now is really driven by, as we talked about, the 10 year uh, the 10 year uh, yield having an impact on that. People will put their money in US treasuries versus some dividend paying stocks. So I would expect that to come down, uh, the stock to go up as you see some softening on the yield side of things. But that 60 to 70% payout, very comfortable for us, very much in line with our cash flow and allows us to retain enough cash to continue to invest in the business. All right, Greg, thanks so much for taking some time. I know you guys are busy today with your earnings. Greg Ebel, he is the CEO of Enbridge Energy. Uh, ENB is the ticker. I'm looking over the last uh, five years, compounded annual return of about 8.5%, uh, better than uh, its uh, benchmark index. So some solid returns there. Uh, and the stock is up slightly here today. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank. Because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common... It's making their money work harder. 
That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. You're listening to The Taint. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. Jay Hatfield joins us, uh, one of those smart folks we like to chat with, CEO, founder, and portfolio manager at Infrastructure Capital Advisors. And Jay, this has been a good week for risk assets here. I mean, I, I mean, we got yields pulling in 50 basis points on the 10-year. We got the stocks up five days in a row. What'd you make of the job sprint today? What are you making of this market right here that we've seen recently? Thanks, Paul, Matt, for having me on again. We uh, put out a note on Tuesday because things were looking a little bit bleak last yep. week, I'd have to say, because you'd have great earnings reports and terrible price reaction in the market as a whole. But we did some work on near-term catalysts on bonds, and we saw everything really lining up for rally. So, so far, we've been correct. And what we're really focused on is global growth, mostly in Europe, and nobody really ever reports on it, but you can easily get it on the terminal. That's where we get it. <laughs> the European data <clears throat> is just awful. Yep. Uh, it's, they're in a recession, as we had predicted. Mild so far, but it's only going to get worse. They, the ECB raised rates twice during the quarter, so nothing better is happening. Yep. And if you look even today, um, the uh, unemployment is rising in Spain and Germany. They'd have the final uh, manufacturing PMIs, 43. So that's bad. But also we had a weak PMI, which mm -hmm. lowered our, our Atlanta growth rate. And then the final point is that, and we focus a lot on oil, is that it's not well discussed that gasoline prices came down 10% yeah. in a month. So it's 120% annualized. That's a little bit exaggeration. But still, that's going to show up in not just headline CPI, but more importantly, core. And this is what the Fed misses. And this is why they have all the nonsense from the 70s. <laughs> because the real problem in the 70s, we had a 1,200% increase in oil prices. It bleeds through to core. So we're going to probably have cool CPI print in a couple of weeks and PPI, definitely. And so this whole narrative that we're going to like, 6% bond yields should attenuate. Having said that, we think that rates will really rally when the ECP starts cutting rates in the first half or even the first quarter of next year. So you think they're going to cut imminently? They do have a two-handle on inflation, you know, even, I mean, maybe because they're in a recession or maybe because inflation was transitory-ish. Mm -hmm. um, we were talking to Cam Harvey yesterday. You know that guy? He's a professor sure. at Duke. Yeah, excellent. Uh, yeah. And he was making the point that you have been making right. for a while. Mm -hmm. He said, look, uh, it's ridiculous that this Fed thinks inflation is still, you know, three to four. Mm -hmm. When you take out the rent equivalent, which is backwards looking in the wrong way to, to do it, um, we're under two. And I w immediately looked at your CPI-R mm -hmm. on infrastructure capital advisors on your website. And you guys have 1.3% right now. So explain to us how you calculate that. You use core CPI and then you take out the rent equivalent part and you put in Case Shiller, right? Correct. You can even, you can basically do it in your head. Yeah. So because- Not my head. You, you yeah. can do it in your head. <laughs> but it's kind of nutty, but the CPI still is saying shelters 7.2%. 
um, when it's really, it's actually going up a little bit to be fair, but it's not likely to skyrocket. But, but so just assume zero, case shiller has been close to zero. So 40% times seven uh, is like 3%. So basically CPI is over, uh, headline is overstated by 3%. And then it's only 33% a core. So it's overstated, core is overstated by about 2.1%. So, but the the um, so inflation isn't as bad as we think it is, is what you're saying. Still, cumulatively, it sucks. Yep. Right for consumers, especially since wages. My New York strip I don't, is I don't, still killing. I don't me feel like wages have kept up. Uh, certainly, mine haven't. And then um, growth, though, looked incredible. Backward looking, right? Four point nine percent in Q3. How does it look to you going forward? Because I feel like the consumer is getting hurt here. You know, and charging everything right. and missing payments. Well, no doubt we have a saying that um, the average consumer is not an economist. <laughs> so what we mean by that is they don't really care about CPI, whether it's R or whatever, because that's for 12 months, but they do care about 24. So prices have still skyrocketed over 24. And if your wages didn't go up, which is true for a lot of lower income consumers and you don't own a house, you're definitely under pressure. And by the way, CPIR was much higher than core CPI for a while. Correct. Because yes. I look back on the table and you guys were up at 11, 12 percent. Yeah, this is why we say the Fed is incompetent because they just weren't even looking <laughs> at any data. Like you can go back and say, look at PPI is actually reported. It was at 11 when they said things were transitory. So they need to redo their entire framework. And you should, everyone should go look <laughs> Um, at the C way the CPI shelter is calculated, it's ridiculous. They only updated it one sixth every six months. So it's just designed to be lag. So the Fed should correct for that. In fact, the San Francisco, San Francisco Fed does correct for yeah, that. Why? I just don't understand why they don't. I mean, for all the, the flack dude. that Druckenmiller gives Janet Yellen, she's a super genius, right? Mm -hmm. And she's an economist, right. PhD. Yes. Like she's not, um, now she's like a government, you know, political, uh, kind of a hack, but mm, she was like a serious economist. It's inexplicable, and yeah. I, I'm shocked that uh, not on this program, but other media outlets, that everyone comes on and says, not the Fed, but other people, that inflation's sticky when it's just flat out not sticky. It's actually <laughs> contained. It has been since July of last year. Have we seen then peak rates? We, we definitely, there's not going to be another increase. And now, for the first time, we've been saying, I think, yep. for so the federal funds rate, right? Yeah, we, we've been saying for four or five months, the Fed won't increase rates, but they don't know it yet. Now yeah. they know it. Now they know it after this employment report. Very cool wages, rising unemployment. So that's what they look at, even though that's a flawed leading indicator. So the Fed is clearly not going to raise. ECB is not going to raise. They're going to cut. But, you know, all this really is going to start to impact because we're worried about the liquidity, you know, trillion, that's the other data we look at that most people don't. Global monetary base or supply, global liquidity really from central banks, down a trillion over the last um, two quarters. So it's terrible. That's probably not going to turn around until next year when the ECB is forced to cut. Because, you know, that's a simple way to trade the market, right? It's like if the Fed intervenes during the pandemic and says we're going to increase the monetary base by a gigantic amount, you get long. <laughs> if, the, if, if they're sucking money, it's like taking $500 off free parking, you know, if you're playing Monopoly. Yeah. All of a sudden, you know, if you put it on, then all of a sudden everything's overinflated and everything's go-go, take it off, and it's bad. So we're in the takeoff phase, but I think we overshot to 5%. Um, we'll see if we keep rallying from here at 45 but 
Next year, we're confident we'll get below four, so we'll meet our 5,000 target next year at least. But, on but the so you don't think like the bond vigilantes will come back and say, we're not going to finance this kind of deficit spending much longer? We think there's not way— Not this, this rate. We, that's a great question because we think there's way, way too much focus on the U.S. budget deficit. <laughs> Because, like, I, I mean, I don't know. You and know, Matt, I, Matt is concerned about it. So can, are you going to try to allay his concerns? Well, I think it's terrible from an economic growth perspective because there's something called crowding out. So if the government spends money, it can't be invested. In well, if they spend $900 billion next year uh, servicing <laughs> the debt, um, we're not going to have enough money to spend for the next pandemic. No, it's, a horrible, it's yeah. a horrible, horrible thing. And it's a waste of capital. And it's terrible for economic growth, terrible for everyone. But... It's not enough to drive global interest rates up 100 basis points. That's my only point. At the margin, it's bad. Yeah. But keep in mind that our Fed, strangely, if you look at the balance sheet, is actually monet still monetizing part of the debt because they're unwinding their short-term borrowing. So it, it can't be true that that's the key driver of global interest rates. It's bad. It's bad for it's a terrible economic policy. Obviously, the budget process is horrendous and for taxes dude because <coughs> right. now every time someone wants to cut taxes they're gonna say we can't afford to we got to do entitlements we got to pay for the military we got to pay 900 billion dollars of service debt so uh, miller and the rest of the middle class is going to have to pay half half <coughs> no it's horrendous you know? policy and in fact you know we're actually pretty bullish about china because they save 45 percent of their gdp so savings and investment drives economic growth that's all only thing that does it and that's just intuitively obvious. So if the government is reducing savings, we're going to have a lower growth yep. in the long run. So it is terrible, but just not enough to drive rates. global rates Got to it. six, seven, eight percent. That's our, our main point. You learn, we learned something again today. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we do. Every time he comes in here. Jay Hatfield, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, Jay is the CEO and founder and portfolio manager at Infrastructure Capital Advisors. He was a banker. He was, I don't know, a hedge, fund, a hedge fund dude. He's a skier. <laughs> up at uh, my favorite place, Squaw Valley, which I think they've renamed it something. Um, but still, Lake Tahoe, that whole area up there is just awesome. So if you oh, have they that Squaw Valley was not cool? Squaw. No, no, it's yeah. something different now, so I don't know. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. So Sam Bankman-Fried uh, found guilty. Uh, Shocker. It took the jury like 15 minutes, a cup of coffee, <laughs> to convict this guy. I'm not even sure they got their pizza. Even so, the trial was, felt like the trial was only like two weeks. It was, but there was so much evidence, and so many people turned against him. It was, it was like an open and shut case. No chance. But we have somebody here who's really into this business and really read in, as the kids say, Zeke Fox. He's an investigative reporter. And he's also author of the new book on crypto entitled Number Go Up. It was released in September 2023. He uh, writes for Bloomberg Business Week. And it was used in the trial. It was used in the trial. Explain that to me, Zeke. So how was your book used in this trial here? Hey. This was unbelievable. So as you point out, they had so much evidence. All the top lieutenants were testifying against Sam. But then Sam decided to take the stand and tell his version of the story. Real unusual decision for a criminal defendant because then the prosecutor gets to cross-examine you about anything you've ever said. And this prosecutor had no mercy. I felt like she was going for, bo she was going for bonus points. I think I felt like she wanted to convict Sam. She's like, forget the witnesses. 
I'm going to convict you again right now. And so she was like, uh, Sam, have you ever said anything about the relationship between Alameda Research, your hedge fund, and your exchange, FTX? Have you ever said maybe that Alameda Research didn't play by the rules on FTX? And Sam was like, I don't recall. And then the prosecutor, Danielle Sassoon, was like, Your Honor, let me introduce. And then she pulled out a hard copy of Number Go Up, um, walked it over to the the witness stand. The defense was like, objection, objection. (laughs) They had a little conference. It It was admitted. And then for like, honestly, for quite some time, she had Sam read different pages of the book. And was like, do you remember saying that now? <laughs> um, and he had to just say, I don't recall. Because what's described in the book is this interview I had with him in November 2022, just before he got arrested. And he basically did not quite have his story straight. And he said a lot of stuff to me that I think he regretted. Um, so he couldn't really admit to saying those things now. And I think it looked terrible for him um, in the trial in front of the jury because when his lawyer was asking him questions, he had a lot to say. But when the prosecutor brought up his other statements, he just had to stick with, I don't recall. That's rough. <laughs> so part of me feels sorry for the guy because, you know, I've done things wrong and I, I know that feeling of regret. Yep. But, um, but the size of the fraud and the crimes, I would say alleged, but now I guess I can say committed, right? Since yep. he's been proven guilty yeah. is just massive um what do you expect zeke at the sentencing uh i was having a little uh debate over at the at the news desk a little bit earlier and um some of the people on the desk were like well elizabeth holmes only got 11 years so maybe gets 15 and then somebody else said yeah but bernie madoff got like 150 years so you know where where do you think sam bankman freed falls in the pantheon of uh giant con men so I mean, I think these sentences are determined by how much money you stole. And maybe he'll be able to try his arguments again, which is that um, so he he took this customer money and he went and gambled it. And he wanted to say in his defense that some of those bets worked out. And the judge at his at his trial said, that doesn't matter. You stole this money. If you stole the money, we don't care what you did with it after. The crime is just the stealing the money. But maybe when it comes to sentencing, he'll be able to say, hey, there's not actually $8 billion missing. You know, we've been able to find that a bankruptcy court has been able to find, you know, $4 billion. Just sentence me on the $4 billion. Um, but even still, $4 billion is a lot. So he's looking at a, at a bad sentence. I, I'd say maybe like 20 years. That's just my guess, though. Wow. Hey, Zeke, I guess folks within the crypto space, I guess they're wondering at this point to what extent does the whole Sam Bankman Freed scam the you know the FTX debacle how much does that negatively impact just the crypto space in general do you have any thoughts on that so i i'm hearing a lot of wishful thinking from the crypto people that this does not impact them it doesn't reflect on their project and i think it doesn't matter if your project had nothing to do with Sam Bankman Freed if you start some new coin now and you go pitch it to regular people they're going to say, oh, crypto, isn't that how the guy with the curly hair stole everybody's money? <laughs> and like, they're not going to want to invest, you know? So I think it, it is all the publicity around this trial is horrible for crypto. I think crypto people would love to move on. But coming up next, we've got um, Alex Mashinsky of Celsius, 
who's also another crypto guy accused of a massive fraud. And if it wasn't for Sam Bankman-Fried, I mean, this one was really big, too. He'd be like the big crypto villain. So maybe the, the bad publicity is, is they're not out of the woods yet. They're getting more bad publicity. Even, well, even got, just the other day, you got another one. Gem- Every day is another one. Gemini uh, and Genesis, also the, the Winklevi and uh, Barry, they're, they're in deep trouble. And, I, you know, I wonder, though, and you've been reporting on crypto for, for so long, Zeke, that I feel like you know just as much about crypto as the biggest experts in it. Um, is it fair to... To lump it all into uh, into one ball, can you put it all crypto in the same drawer? Because I've always felt that Bitcoin is one thing and all of the other coins are another. Yeah, so I've heard I've heard this um, argument. I do think Bitcoin's a little different. I mean, we may have different opinions on this. I think the reason Bitcoin is different is because this whole cult has developed around it, and people treat Bitcoin almost as like a religion. And so it's going to be tougher to we do that with the dollar uh, change these that's, people's minds. That's how it goes with these things, you know. If we all believe, then it's valuable, and if we all don't believe, then it isn't, right? Um. Yeah. I mean, I would say the dollar is based on like more than than belief. You know, Full it's like the official currency of our country. You know, they, we can use it to pay taxes. Everybody's always used it. Um, all right. So gold. So gold. Right. Gold is probably a better because why is this? you know, yellow metal that we dig out of the earth, um, valuable. Uh, I guess it, we use it for wedding rings and maybe like some of the foil that goes around the moon landers when NASA was doing that. But, um, it's a commodity supply and demand on that. Yeah. One. Bitcoin too, supply and demand. I know. Yeah. I, know, so I, know. I don't know. Uh, I just feel like, you know, there's all of these scams seem to happen with all of the other coins. And I just look at Bitcoin, and it's worth $35,000. Hey, Zeke, thanks so much well, for but- joining us here. we got to let you go <laughs> on, up on the time. But thanks so much for joining us, Zeke Fox, investigative reporter. And he's the author of the new book on crypto entitled Number Go Up. Check it out. It was released just in September of this year. Perfect timing for our friend Zeke on all things crypto. This is Bloomberg. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork, and it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest-growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. 
Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. It is Friday. It is 1223 p.m. on the Wall Street time. That means it's time for what is Matt Miller driving? Hannah Ella joins us as she does every time this week. Bloomberg Business Week columnist. We're going to talk about the BMW XM, Matt's love for superchargers. Who doesn't? And Matt and Hannah's new podcast. What do you got Someone, for somebody wrote this. So listen, every week uh, I do this segment yep. um, to talk about the car I'm test driving this week. And every week I record a podcast with Hannah Elliott, who writes for Bloomberg Pursuit. So I figured like chocolate and peanut butter, bring let's it. bring these two bring things it. together. So what's um, on the podcast? Our podcast is called Hot Pursuit, Night. which is a play on, uh, you know, uh, Hannah's unit, uh, play on words. Um, Hannah's unit is called Pursuits. And um, the podcast comes out every Saturday morning, and you can listen to it live on Bloomberg uh, Radio or taped to live to tape on Bloomberg Radio. But um, I thought it would be cool to talk about these two big trucks together. And they're very different, obviously. I'm driving a Dodge Durango Hellcat. Saw that. Looks very week. cool. It's like a family truckster, right? It's a grocery getter. Um, <laughs> and, you know, they start at $40,000 in the base model. So um, very affordable. But if you put the Hellcat engine in. Oh, boy. And that's the only thing that matters to me. Sure. It's a supercharged 6.2 liter V8. Then it costs $94,000 and actually can you can get the price up to 110 pretty fast. So I absolutely love the car. I love superchargers. I love V8s. Yeah. Um, but it's really all about the motor. It's not a terribly um, luxurious interior. The seats aren't super comfortable. I don't love the layout of the infotainment. Uh, it doesn't handle very well. I don't think the build quality is super high. Um, it's just... <laughs> the supercharged motor that I care about. <laughs> and uh, I think for that, it's it's pretty expensive, maybe too expensive. So, but Hannah is driving like an ultra luxury truck, a BMW XM. Hannah, tell us about that. So uh, I've got a few a few points to your supercharger motor. This, the BMW XM does have a V8 too. This is a twin turbo V8 um, and it's also paired with an electric motor. This is actually a hybrid. Um, it gets 644 horsepower, so a little bit less than that Hellcat, but sort of comparable. Right, 710 um, for the Hellcat. Wow. Yeah, yeah. So close, close. But I have to say the XM costs a lot more. More. It starts at about one hundred and sixty thousand dollars starting, <laughs> and it goes up from there. Um, I should mention they're going to come out with an even more powerful edition next month. Um, so it's really, it's fast, it's powerful, it's very expensive. Personally, I do not think it drives uh, in, in the sophisticated way that we have come to expect from BMWs. It's a little bit inelegant, jerky. Uh, I found it extremely powerful, but not the greatest handling, not the greatest driving apparatus. And Matt, I think you've driven this one too, haven't you? I have, and this is where I think... Is this uh, the, like the souped up version of what I've got? No, oh. no. Uh, I have an X. You have, have X. true. You have an X, and Three. this is the M version of the X. So yes. actually, it's yeah. kind of it's supposed to be the top of the line. Okay. But okay. frankly, yeah. your car 
is probably drives much Love it. more much smoother, yeah. much more sophisticated, yeah. much more elegant. Um, and I know what Hannah's talking about because I've driven this XM before. When I first took it out of the garage in Chelsea, I noticed that the 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 switch from electric to gas was pretty jerky. And um, the the thing is, I think the XM and the Durango Hellcat, both of them need to be driven in anger for them to work right. <laughs> and I don't know if you've been able to really ring it out, Hannah, but when I finally took the XM up to Bear Mountain and ripped it around turns at uh, much higher speeds than are recommended, then it started started to shine. I liked the anti-roll bar. <laughs> I liked the suspension. But otherwise, when you're being just like a rich person driving around, uh, there's no air suspension in that BMW. It just isn't yeah. nice. You know, I have to say, I lived in New York for almost 20 years. I'm now in L.A. I'm trying to not drive in anger. I'm trying to move <laughs> past that. And I, yeah, I love anger. Anger is my favorite emotion. But I'm trying to really, you know, these are my L.A. years, and I don't want to have to drive my BMW in anger to have fun with it. Um, I should also say the XM is huge. It's the same size as the X7, but it only seats six people. The X7 is a seven-passenger. The X uh, sorry, it only seats five people. The X7 seats seven, of course. This seats five, so it it's big. It's uh, Matt. I think you use the word brutalist for how it looks. It's I aggressive. think it just looks a bit heavy-handed. So I, I like yeah. that. Um, so when you tell me yeah. this is a seven-passenger uh, car that only seats five, my eyes light up. <laughs> you know, because I'm six four, <laughs> two hundred ten sure. pounds. Sure. I like that. Yes. That means there's more space. It's business class. That's what this car yes. is. And, oh, yeah, well, there's a lot of space. Yeah, I, I think that's great, and I love um, the the big grill. A lot of people would say it's ugly on the XM. I would say it's Vuktish, which is a German word. <laughs> oh. it's, it's powerful. You know, its presences uh -huh. can't be ignored. Um, the Dodge Durango Hellcat, on the other hand, uh, you can easily overlook that vehicle. In fact, it feels much uh, smaller in a lot of ways than my Challenger, which is only a two-door um, hmm. It's definitely thinner. The seats are not big enough for my butt, you know. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I think uh, it's fairly small for an SUV, even though it's a three-row uh, vehicle. I don't know who's going to buy that thing, but the prices um, haven't come down dramatically. I feel like in the long run, the, both the BMW XM and the Durango Hellcat, they're going to depreciate like crazy. Um, but the XM, certainly, because... You know, Hannah, the, the BMW I really want to buy and hopefully will at the beginning of next year is a um, 2020 M760. And they started at 165 MSRP, but now I'm finding them three years old with 30,000 miles for 65. Oh. So they've depreciated yeah. like mad. And I feel like the XM would too, except for they're not going to make very many. No, they're not. And I, I have to say, even even fewer of this this XM label version coming. And I know I, I mentioned that before, but they're really kind of pushing it, I think, because they realized if this is supposed to be the most powerful BMW SUV ever made, and it is, they really need to like push the power even more. Because if you're getting beat by Dodge, that's not a good look, is it? No, no. And by the way, that brings up another point, something that we spoke about on the podcast. And you said something where I was like, oh, 
<laughs> now I get it. I've always wondered why Americans go to the supercharger, and I love a supercharger. Yeah, um, sure. I think it's the best kind of forced induction. You get the power right at the very bottom of the rev range. And Europeans and Japanese have always gone to the turbochargers. Um, I didn't know why, but you pointed out a pretty important reason, Hannah. Yeah, I have a theory, and I, I think it's actually backed up by science, that really European roads and, uh, for instance, Japanese roads tend to be smaller, more curvy. Obviously, these are smaller spaces, while American roads are big open highways, great uh, for driving drag races, you know, going fast in a straight line. Um, the turbocharger is best used on curvy, windy roads. I mean, it's amazing when you can feel the, the thrust of the boost kick in um that's when you really feel the value of it you don't necessarily feel the value of a turbocharger when you're just on an open highway supercharger maybe you do that's my theory i think she's right she's on the <laughs> a turbocharger is more sophisticated you know a supercharger is uh, no a turbocharger Tur turbo turbo. Okay. supercharger is just like a sledgehammer that sounds that's, american that's why i right. like it yeah, yeah. It's, it's, right. it's pretty American. Um, all right. The other thing that uh, I wanted to just briefly touch on is uh, F1. It's coming up. It's, it's, I know it's, we still have another week, but tell us about you're going to go to Las Vegas. Yes, I will be there. I'm excited and slightly terrified at the same time. It's going to be a circus, which, of course, this is what we want from Los Angeles or from Las Vegas. But <laughs> um, <laughs> it's going to be wild. Uh, November 18th is the the night of the Grand Prix race. Um, yesterday, it's I spoke a night with race? the head of... It's a night race. It starts Sweet. at 10 p.m. local time. Um, I think it might actually be a little bit cold, but yesterday I was talking to the head of Pirelli Motorsport, who just, of course, won the new contract again to provide uh -huh. tires until 2027. Um, they're actually considering it to be a bit of a cold track. They're, go they're okay. preparing the tires to be expecting a cold track, but all that to say... You know, it's $15,000 dinners, wild parties. Of course, the sphere, this huge yep. uh, event space that U2 has been exactly. performing at. is Matt, It's going to be uh, hosting some new musical right. guests during the Grand Prix, which is a big right. deal. Thank That's going to be good stuff. Hannah, thanks so much for joining us. Hannah Elliott, Bloomberg Business Week columnist, joining us to talk about cars. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.